Hello fellow pilots and other podcast listeners. You're listening to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast being recorded today, Friday, March 27, 2020. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell. A lot has happened this week, and we're here to talk about that with MEC Chairman Will McQuillan and Negotiating Chairman Chris Gruner. So this week we saw the announcement of flying reductions, the May system bid cancellation, the recently passed stimulus bill, new MOUs, and a few other topics we'll be discussing. We'll start with Will McQuillan. Will, thank you for coming in. Yep, thank you, Dave. In a way, I'd say the elephant in the room, but just almost like a, a herd of, of elephants that we need to talk about today. And a big one is the reduction in flying that was announced recently. We talked about this some um, on last week's podcast, and folks might want to go back and, and take a look at that. The really important point that I would like to stress is that a reduction in flying does not equate to a, in a linear way to a reduction in staff. Uh, but Will, I'll let you speak to that a little more. Yeah, it has certainly been a very, very busy, uh, if we want to call it busy week, um, with a lot of change, I guess is what I'm, I'm stressing. Uh, we know that we ended last week with an anticipated uh, reduction in capacity of 30%, at least that was what the company forecast. And then uh, midweek, we got notification that they intended to draw down the April schedule by 70%. And that's obviously a dramatic change. Um, as I said in the, the message to the pilots this week, it is in line with what we're seeing with Peer Airlines in the industry uh, as people come, I think, to recognize the, the gravity of the situation. And I think as they all have recognized that their uh, competitor airlines are taking similar measures, it's given them comfort to, to make those dramatic cuts. But to your point, I, I think the reason that it's upsetting is that it does create a lot of uh, math in public with people trying to draw that linear relationship from these capacity cuts to staffing numbers. And uh, you know, if you're trying to draw that equation to predict a, a furlough threat, which is, I think, what everybody's trying to do, all that really does is produce a lot of anxiety. Uh, people start to make all kinds of bold predictions about what things will look like in the fall and with staffing. And uh, I would just caution everybody to be very careful of those bold predictions. Well, you mentioned that the 70% doesn't translate to certainly not a furlough in the imminent future and, and even a reduction that's to that level. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, certainly. The staffing is obviously a complicated formula. Um, and any talk of, again, what a furlough might look like at the uh, the end of this all is a function of a number of things. Um, you know, how many people take advantage of the various programs that are designed to voluntarily mitigate some staffing, uh, which I, Chris will talk about here in a little bit. Um, Long-range demand forecasts are, are really the driver of that, as we've said before. A decision to, uh, to furlough is not a short-term decision. It's based on long-term, uh, you know, multi-year forecasts of demand. And right now, that kind of math is, is very fuzzy at best. Um, and I think it bears mentioning that as pilots, we're, we're natural problem solvers, and we want answers today. And it's just frustrating because there are no firm answers today. Uh, we've seen this before, and bold predictions today are no more accurate, really, than trying to predict the Dow these days in today's environment. Uh, I would just encourage pilots to focus on taking care of themselves, their families, flying the jet safely, and 
trying to find some comfort and recognize that there really is nothing firm known at this point. Do you have any sense when we might be able to make more definitive statements about staffing and timing? Well, I think everybody right now is trying to analyze the the bottom of this situation, and we'll have more clarity on staffing issues in time. I think the next couple of months will be more critical in evaluating where we found the bottom, whether you forecast this to be modeled as a V downturn or a U or something different completely. Uh, we have to find that bottom first and then look at demand out the backside. So really, I think it's we'll have clarity on the staffing issues uh, in the next few months and looking forward towards the end of summer. And are you hearing anything in specific when you're talking to management at the higher levels? Well, again, in my conversations, I've told them uh, several times that if they are envisioning a legitimate furlough threat, uh, that we need to be early uh, in hearing that. And there has been absolutely no notice given that a furlough is forecast uh, as provision in Section 23. And currently, we're all just working diligently on voluntary issues to help the staffing at this point. Good. And as you say, Chris will talk about that in a minute. I, I think this leads naturally into discussions of the stimulus bill that just finally was passed today, because that has some stipulations about things like furlough and what happens to the employees of, of the companies who accept the stimulus package. So you want to talk about that? Yeah, the, the stimulus package or the CARE Act, as it's become known, uh, passed the Senate and then did finally pass the House just a, a couple of hours ago today. And it does, as you said, it has uh, um, provisions in it that protect your contract, that protect your pay, and that protect uh, us as far as staffing goes. Specifically, an airline that accepts the grants has to commit to maintaining salaries and benefits for the employees at least through September 30th of 2020. Uh, they must not conduct involuntary furloughs or reduce pay rates and benefits until September 30th of this year, and they must not seek concessionary terms to existing CBAs through that same time period. That's good to hear. And, you know, I'll take just a minute here to talk about how that got in there, because I, I think it's worth mentioning. It, it wasn't in there initially, and as I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, there was a call to action from ALPA, and we had a... I don't know what the numbers were, but people came to the call and wrote to their senators and their Congress folks to help change that bill. And those are important lessons we learned from the last downturn when there was a stimulus package for the airlines. It didn't bode as well for the employees. And it was important that, that these things got in here. So I want to take a moment to thank everyone who answered the call. What I hear from all of our governor affairs folks is it, it really moved the needle. So good on you and, and please do it again if, if it comes up. Yeah, Ed, I've heard firsthand that uh, in the debate over the bill, just how very helpful it was to have the, the call to action numbers in hand when they were speaking with decision makers. Well, so bringing it back a little bit more locally, have you had conversations with management about that bill and what if, how is that going to affect us here at Alaska Airlines? I have indeed, and of course, everybody's looking for a lot of clarity and a lot of definitive statements around it. And uh, you know, I have made our expectations very, very clear in terms of uh, how we interpret the bill. And um, I can offer that uh, you know, I shared my expectation that existing contractual guarantees apply to pay, 
And the response was that that was also the company's operating assumption. And, uh, you know, that uh, I was assured that there is no internal discussion, quote unquote, um, at Alaska about not taking the grants and being bound by the terms and conditions. I know some pilots have raised a concern that the stimulus package does have some restrictions to corporations that they may may make taking it seem less desirable to the corporation. Can you speak to what those might be? Yeah, I think they're probably speaking to the equity rights issues that are tied uh, certainly into the loans, but into the grants as well, that Secretary Mnuchin has the discretion to require equity stakes uh, for the government in terms of granting the the grant money and uh, whether or not that's going to change the landscape in terms of who takes the grants or who doesn't avail themselves of it. And as I said, that was one question um, that I asked directly. And as of last night, there is, quote unquote, no internal discussion about Alaska not taking the grants. It's their intent to. I'm glad to hear that. Well, there's more big news came out today from our company about the cancellation of the May bid. And I know that's very frustrating to many of our pilots. I know how frustrating it is to you. Oh, it, it's just incredibly frustrating. Um, we were notified late this week that for quote unquote significant cost savings, the company would be canceling that May bid. And it's just regardless of whatever dollar value is attached to it, just an incredibly poor, poor decision. Uh, the negative impact on the pilots that are affected by this bid, in my humble opinion, easily outweighs any cost savings. Uh, it's something that hasn't happened for a long time around here. Uh, they do have a contractual right up until the bid effective date to do so, to cancel these bids. But traditionally, we haven't been this close to the bid effective date when something like this happens. Yeah, and I you know, I think this is another one of those examples where just because something is allowed in the CBA doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And I mean, I know the company is trying to save some money, but the in the scheme of things, this seems like a, as you say, the, the negative effect of this versus the cost savings seems like an odd oh, There equation. are impacts so far beyond the balance sheet to these types of things. And that's the same thing that we've said with the JFK closure. And oddly enough, this is the reduction bid, right? This was the bid that reduced people and caused so much anxiety to begin with. So it's, it's unfortunate. And we've, um, you know, spoken to it. We've uh, done our own. And I'd like to thank on such short notice how little time we had to kind of react to this. But um, ALPA EFNA stepping up and our membership volunteers stepping up to help us do some some costing in terms of what the the material costs were the uh, of, of this decision and present them to management. But we're, we're still apparently moving ahead. Have you had those discussions of comparing this morning, yeah, th this morning, uh, I saw their their business case, and we presented what we thought was our um, our costing of the bid more accurately. What the impact of the bid was spoke certainly of just how adversely it impacts people personally. Um, but again, a business decision. It seems like we say this a lot on these podcasts, right? That a a business decision has been made that's going to have a very very personal impact on right. people. So what happens when a bid like this is canceled? Well, it, it basically just kind of unwinds the bid back to as if everything didn't happen. Um, new captains, even if they're done with training, will be retrained and go back to the right seat. 
transitions who have uh, gone from one fleet to the other, even if they're done with training, will retrain or requalify on some type of short course to go back to their old equipment. Uh, people who've developed expectations about going to new bases don't. And uh, of course, new hires, that's perhaps the, the trickiest piece because they technically have nowhere to go. They have no vacancies and they go, if you will, back to the pool, which is a fancy way of saying unemployed. Right. Um, you know, again, I'd stress that just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. Uh, it seems like we say that a lot. Uh, around here. And we've stressed this with management. Like I said, we've talked about the negative impact. The decision was made um, to move ahead anyway. And I was informed of that, I guess, about an hour ago. Haven't most of these pilots been through training already to some degree? I mean, some of them are even on OE. To varying degrees, right? That was a lot of the analysis we did is uh, how much of the costs were behind versus ahead mm -hmm. uh, and presented that. And, and that's the equally frustrating part. I'd, you know, there's so much that's frustrating about it, but but that is the point. It's like, how far are you past the critical point, the equal time point? And are we going to Maui or are we going back? But apparently we're going back. Sadly, like you said, just because it's allowed doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And you tried to get them to do the right thing and just weren't successful. Yeah, I, I had that conversation with the key decision makers around this. And so we identified who we needed to talk to. We talked to them. We presented our position and um, like I said, the decisions made and they go on. Uh, we did have the opportunity, though, I think, especially in this environment where there is no place for these new hires to go. And for the record, there's 22 of these uh, new hires who are affected by this. They're Alaska pilots. They started here. They came here. They had expectations of developing a career here. And so we did feel like there was a, the MEC felt there was a real duty to work outside the lines and try and protect them. And what was that? How, how are we able to help them? Well, that was where management indicated a willingness to, um, to retain them and keep them in their currently trained seats and bases, which is outside the contract because there's no vacancy on file. The bid's canceled. They technically don't have a vacancy or a home. But um, in lieu of unemployment, uh, management was willing to retain them and keep them as employees. And uh, we went through the MEC to work out uh, an agreement, a unanimous agreement, obviously, by the, uh, the MEC to support and take care of these new hires and allow them in the form of an MOU to, um, to be retained without technically a vacancy on file. So they'll be employed with full rights. That was the plan and that that's what we just got done today it's a bit of an ironic situation in how we're able to help pilots who are, are the new hires but not those who you know have been here for quite a while yeah if there was a contractual uh, wrench you could turn lever you could pull something that you could do to compel the decision to be unwound for everybody then you know obviously that would be done uh the, but at this point, you know, the, there's past practice on this. We went back and we certainly, in terms of understanding where we were and what we could do, um, went back and talked to previous negotiating committee chairman, to retirees who were, in fact, uh, instrumental in drafting the language that's part of our, our current contract. Well, what was the motivation to try to find some help for the, the 22 new hires? Well, that's simple. That's the right thing to do. 
in this environment, uh, if you cancel a class, not only are their previous employers not likely to take them back or they're not hiring, but there's just, there's no place to go. Right. You've got it. You've got to take care of your own. And they're our own now. Yes. You know, and one of the other things, I mean, I, I looked through, David, on this list when we got the the data the other day and the company announced this and I'm looking down these names and I know so many of these people when they come through training they come through here we've just talked to all these pilots we know how eager they are to be either finally in a domicile they're choosing or finally have that upgrade they were looking for um, and you know all that's taken away and that doesn't fit on a spreadsheet but it sure fits in terms of that pilot's uh, you know takeaway of what the the company thinks of them for the rest of their career. Yeah, exactly. A, a small monetary gain for a huge impact to pilots' lives. Yeah, and, and I just don't know. You just get so upset about these kinds of things and, and not knowing how to fix it, how to make it better. Yeah, and you know, the frustrating thing for me, I've, I've been watching this play out for 17, 18 years, and it, it just never seemed to get how those small decisions that affect pilots' lives have a major impact on the workforce that you create. Mm-hmm. Yep, whether it was our furloughs in, in 08, the JFK base closure, um, decisions that, uh, you know, back around that same time in 08 that sent so many of us to, you know, we were reduced out of Seattle, mostly mm-hmm. up to Anchorage. I mean, these things all have impacts and they're all remembered. Yes, they are. Well, one of the things that I think has been difficult for all of us over the last few weeks is how things change. It's hard to know what your footing is, what's going to happen tomorrow, a week from tomorrow. And uh, some of that is not helped by, I mean, frankly, some of the things that were said on uh, Base Chief Pilot Calls today, sort of some prognostication about how many airplanes were going to be parked and and what that means. Yeah, well, it's it's troubling because, again, we're trying to take as pilots a very pragmatic, careful, predictable approach to the future and not get too wrapped up into emotion. And there are, have been comments made, and there certainly were comments made today that have stirred up a lot of uh, emotion. There, there almost seems to have been a concerted effort this week by the company to paint a, a pretty grave picture of where things are on the webcast and then on these uh, base chief pilot calls. and. You know, while it's prudent to plan for the worst, you should always emphasize the likely. You know, as pilots, we plan for engine fires, but we don't spend every day briefing them to our passengers. And uh, I'm not entirely sure of the motive, but the company sure seems to be focused on worst outcomes in their discussions with the employees this week. And uh, I think we all need to be very careful and wary about expectation setting in this environment. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you just, you really need to take definitive statements like that with a grain of salt, I think, and for a couple of reasons, uh, not the least of which is uh, nobody really knows. Things are changing a lot. I mean, you saw there was a, uh, the company had a 30% capacity reduction that they announced, and then hardly three days later, we heard the 70%. Yeah, I'll be diplomatic and say, yes, things are incredibly fluid. And I think that at best, what you're hearing today is guesses, best guesses, educated guesses, if you will, but certainly not uh, indicative of what we know, because we don't know. Right. Especially when you're projecting out in the September timeframe. 
Right. You, everybody wants to see what the demand curve looks like coming out the backside of this, and that is the only thing that's relevant. And they can plan for the engine fire, but I take exception to preaching the engine fire to uh, to everybody at this time. And I think it bears pointing out too, David, that um, as we've said before, uh, we do receive, I think, pretty candid and regular briefings um, as we've navigated things so far from uh, from the company, and then we do cross-check that against uh, ALPA, EF&A to ensure that, uh, that things are accurate and, and what we're hearing is something that we can count on. Um, when it comes to the a base chief pilot call and an off-the-cuff answer, um, with all due respect, they're not at the, the level of these high-level decision-making critical points. That's right, and I, and I think it's worth remembering that well, there's a lot going on at the present. It's kind of a long game going on, and this health issue will subside and recover, and so will the economy. And when it does, we'll be in a similar position as we were before, needing to do the same kind of work on our contract. And I think setting some expectations out that we may need to make some kind of concessions is... Um, I think that's premature, and, and I'm cautious when I hear things like that coming from management, knowing whether there's actually any financial proof and support for those sorts of decisions, or if it's a tactic, or if it's just fear of the moment. So again, grain of salt when, when we hear things like that, I, th- I think is important. Yeah, that's a fair point, David. And I will say that in my conversations with the, um, the other MEC chairman, what we're hearing and seeing in terms of uh, the fear environment and um, the kind of the silent drumbeat of uh, contractual concessions, it's it's not unique to Alaska. It's something that's playing out uh, it, at all properties in some fashion or another. And I have been, I guess what I can say is that I've been very, very clear in my expectations um, with management and that I expect to see the math behind their projections and what's being thrown around. Um, and that it is my perception that the CARE Act gives them time to plan and not react about the future, wind their watch, if you will, in the uh, engine fire scenario before you pull the T-handle, and that uh, our contract applies per the act and that all the provisions of the act apply to us. Good to know. Thanks, Will. I think that gives us a little bit more of a picture of, of what's going on. And now, Let's move to how that will affect the pilots. And Chris, you've been doing a ton of work over the last week at um, finding some some ways to help out both the pilots and the company, frankly. And I'll, I'll let you talk about the work that you've been doing and the MOUs that have been signed. But let's start by just making a really clear distinction between that work that you've been doing and furlough mitigation and how those things are not the same. Yeah, David. So uh, first of all, I just want to say it's been a really big team effort. So I want to acknowledge all the work that everybody's been doing from, uh, well, you setting these things up and make sure we're communicating effectively. Um, You know, the other committee members with, uh, you know, Rob Casey, Drew York, uh, Scott Rubin, Sid Graham. I mean, everybody's been working around the clock and it's uh, really been heartening to see the effort that people are willing to put in. So, uh, yeah, lately we've been uh, negotiating over the last three weeks, right, the COVID-19 protections, which we did discuss a bit this week. So I'm going to follow up with that towards the end. And then we also talked about uh, voluntary leaves and incentive lines. And this is just to be clear, a uh, voluntary program. It's uh, proactive and pragmatic in order to 
you know, help help us kind of adjust to the immediate situation that's going on right now is you have this rapid immediate drawdown in uh, demand and flying. It is not at all a, a reflective of Section 23 in the contract. So if you look at that, that section does not kick off until the company forecasts a furlough and then there's a series of steps required. That is not what we're doing right now. So thanks for the opportunity yeah. to clarify that. It looks the same, but it's it's not the same. It's being driven by a completely different process and goal in a way, right? Uh, yeah, in a way. So these are slightly different kind of programs that are, you know, other people are using and it's, uh, you know, I think it's a little more modern. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but, uh, you know, there are other programs that are required that are kind of modeled off the uh, previous programs that we've used and other things we can discuss once we hit that point. But yes, generally you're still trying to accomplish some of the same things, but, uh, again, due to the, the speed and the, uh, you know, rapidity of how all this stuff has happened, it's important for us to kind of get in front of this. So let's go through, there's essentially two new MOUs and then, uh, a, would you call it an addendum or a reworking of the, the MOU that came out last week for the COVID-19 yeah, we created a new MOU that just amends and updates that. And All right. Correct. Well, let's start first. Talk to me about the incentive line MOU. Okay, so we actually touched three things in here, and I'll go go through each of them. So yes, we have incentive lines. I've got voluntary, we call them voluntary enhanced leaves of absence, and it's kind of a hybrid program. We'll discuss that in a second as well. And there's another important component in here, and that's a delay of the May bid. Um, and part of that is if you look at April, um, we bid a full schedule and that just fell apart entirely. So um, it's going to be interesting covering that. We'll discuss that a little bit later on. Um, but uh, the other part of that is now that delay allows them to kind of get a better handle on what's available. So that way people can bid something that's actually going to largely exist and then uh, should hopefully kind of mitigate some of the uncertainties around what the schedule is going to look like moving forward, which has benefits again for both the pilots and the, the company. As part of that, to make sure that people could bid appropriately, we were also able to negotiate a delay in vacation trading. So you can continue to trade your vacation for the May bid month uh, through April 1st. Okay. Um, so then getting into the incentive lines, it uh, really looks very similar to other programs that you guys have probably seen along those uh, those aspects or, or uh, along those lines. But an incentive line is uh, you're going to bid for it before the monthly bids uh, open up. And it's uh, basically you get paid 50 hours to not show up to work. You're not allowed to pick up anything. Um, now, you can't have training in that month or any other pre-blocked credit other than something that's carrying in. However, we do have a unique aspect to ours, and it's due to our day for day vacation trading because uh, there's a high percentage of pilots, as you can imagine, that have vacation in May and through the summer, or at least a few days of it. And so we didn't want to exclude those individuals from being able to bid one of these lines. So if you have eight or fewer days of vacation, you're still going to be eligible to bid uh, for this. And uh, that vacation will be paid on top of the 50 hours. Okay. And I assume these are awarded in seniority order. Like, like everything else. Correct. Base and seat equipment. And then mm -hmm. uh, they'll have a certain number for each of those. And then uh, correct will be seniority order. And you mentioned 50 hours. It, 
I'm sure a lot of our pilots will see there's some other companies that have a little bit more, not, not much. I think 55 is the highest it goes. Why, why do we have 50 when 55 exists out in the industry? Yeah. So when you look at, uh, 50 hours versus 55, honestly, right now it's about split 50, 50, as far as who has uh, either value. But, um, you know, again, we have that unique aspect where we do have a vacation that's available, you know, up to eight days, right. To be able to be added onto that. So that, that was part of the conversation. Yeah. It just, I, I'm sure a lot of guys are thinking about it. You did ask for 55 that it wasn't that, you know, this isn't what you would ideally have. You know, as far as what we ask, you know, we always push really hard for, uh, what the pilots expect on things. And, you know, there's always a lot of pieces moving into it, but you know, we did really focus on making sure we got the best deal for the pilots that we uh, could. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Thanks, Chris. So that's the incentive line. The other MOU that was signed today is the voluntary extended leave. So what does that mean exactly? Yeah, and that's uh, part of the same MOU there. And the voluntary leaves, um, well, both the incentive lines and the voluntary leave starting in May will be bid together. So prior to the opening of the bid month. Okay. However, voluntary leaves... Uh, you will have an opportunity to get these uh, this week. And after the bids have closed, they're just going to drop the schedule of whoever has them um, for the month of uh, April. So um, those will be available here uh, very shortly if uh, you choose to pick one of those up. Again, these are all voluntary. Um, a couple of things. Chris, I'm sorry, that's the leaves are, are volu voluntary leaves will be available for the month of April. Yeah. Okay. But not the incentive lines. Correct. Okay. So tell me more about the voluntary extended leaves. Yeah, so like I mentioned a little while ago, these are, um, it's kind of a hybrid leave, if you will. So uh, incentive lines and these voluntary leaves, starting with the May bid month, are going to be uh, bid together, essentially, before the uh, bids open. We do have an exception for these voluntary leaves in which the company can offer them for the April bid month, which we know is coming up very soon. So you will see uh, an offering for those here over the next week uh, if you choose to take one of those. Now, the way these are designed is uh, you can bid for them if you have uh, vacation training, any of those things is fine. Now, this is kind of unusual in the fact that if you do have training, like CQ training, then the company is going to uh, expect you to show up and you know bid for that training. You're going to get paid for it. But uh, otherwise, you won't be doing any other flying or company duty uh, while you're on this. Additionally, you're going to get your uh, medical 100% paid for. And then all your other benefits you'll continue to uh, maintain with the exception of your uh, dependent daycare, FSA. So you won't be able to continue to get uh, contributions or uh, give contributions to that. One thing just to be aware of is that um, some of your benefits here may go into what we call arrears. So that means you'll continue to have access to them. However, when you return from that leave, um, you know, if you're gone for three months, you might be paying for that three months that you were gone all at once on that paycheck at the end. So just make sure you fully understand uh, that aspect of it before you decide to accept one of these. So you're talking about things like healthcare um, and health insurance where we pay a portion of it. We're not going to be charged that while we're on the leave, but we're still responsible for it. And when we come back to work, will be expected to pay it then. Correct. So your contribution will be the same, but they just won't be collecting it while you're on the leave. You'll just pay it on the back end. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, now they're going to be offering them in, you know, one, two or three bid months at a time. Um, so a couple advantages of these, you know, is uh, one is if you want to be off for two or three 
months at a time, you have that opportunity, right? Just to drop it again, you're not getting paid unless you go in for training, but, um, it's something to kind of give you some more uh, time off there. Uh, secondly, if you do have, you know, that training or more than eight days of vacation in a single bid month, that's another opportunity for you to, you know, drop time then that you wouldn't have access to on an incentive line. And you mentioned that we'll bid for these together. They'll be offered at the same time. Is that right? Do you have to choose one or the other or can you bid like a ranked order? I'd, I'd like an incentive line. If I don't get that, I'd like a leave. Yeah, it's going to be a ranked order. And unfortunately, it will be a manual process. We do have Alpa working alongside the company to help administer that program. So they're working through those details uh, right now. But yes, you could choose one or the other or both in a certain sequence. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get what you get at the end in seniority order. Okay, good to know. So a lot of work was done last week on the COVID-19 MOU, and you've updated that. Uh, tell me what you mean by that. Is well, there are two aspects. So one, uh, we talked about earlier how the uh, April bid month here is uh, going to be a bit of a disaster. So we're already seeing a little bit of that now here at the end of March. So we have a full schedule, and then you have scheduling, and well, you, you know, the company in generally drawing down a tremendous amount of flying because the demand doesn't exist. Now, when you do that, there's just not an entire trip that disappears, but pieces within a trip, you know, and then trying to match pilots to that becomes difficult. And I know I've heard a lot of uh, people on reserve who've talked about the uh, increased uh, opportunities they've had to uh, fly lately. So I know it's been hard for a lot of uh, people out there in a lot of ways as we've been uh, working our way through this. So uh, part of this, uh, you know, none of this stuff's ever, you know, ever easy as we try to figure out, you know, how to uh, mitigate some of these things. But we made some changes to the strategic cancellation language, and it only applies for April. After April and May, it's going to go back to the way we have it negotiated now and the way they've been uh, supposed to have applied it this month. But uh, so first of all, they're not going to distinguish between a strategic cancellation in base and a regular cancellation in base. So everything is going to be handled in the way that I say now. So first thing is, is that generally all the provisions that we negotiated are still going to apply with the one exception. Um, so, uh, well, I'm going to say two exceptions. <laughs> so, so one, we, uh, we did, we did change one parameter and this actually helps our, uh, pilots with expectations and stuff a bit on when they can expect to hear about a cancellation and also helps scheduling manage the immense fallout that we honestly didn't anticipate happening when we first negotiated that. So the requirement for scheduling to notify a pilot of the cancellation isn't until 24 hours prior to uh, the departure time of the original trip. So if it's three days out, you see a cancellation on your line, just please wait a little while so scheduling can manage all the pieces that are out there and they'll let you know uh, no later than 24 hours out and then you can call them then and, and see what's going on so um, you know they can kind of sort their way uh, through things at that point um, you know if anything falls out inside of there they'll let you know as soon as possible still but just gives a little more space all right other than that the rest of the provisions for cancellation and base that we negotiated still apply with one exception and that is that if uh, the scheduling is still going to give you a trip at notification if they have one if they don't then there is going to be a window of contactability on each day. So it's going to be from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. So it's earlier than what we have in their 25U section of the contract right now. And uh, it will be for only uh, a trip the next day. Also, if you need a hotel in domicile within the footprint of your trip, the company will provide it for you. 
So um, if you get pulled off a trip, you're contactable from three to six, but they have to give you a trip for the next day. Is that, did I understand that right? Yeah. That's or that's, that's the only thing that they could give you. Yeah. So they, if they, and do you need to do this for every day of your trip? The, like, like the contract? Correct. And again, no morning period of contactability. So basically if they pull you off of a trip and this is only a trip, right? The departure domicile, just like it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, trip in base. Um, then in that case, uh, yeah, they will, uh, either assign you a trip, another one, mm-hmm. or yeah, again, you'll hit that contactability window for each day and, uh, uh, that of your, the footprint of your trip. So, um, again, three to 6 PM and it'll be only for a trip that starts the following day. Mm-hmm. And again, they'll still require to get you back within the end of your trip plus five mm-hmm. hours and yeah. all those normal provisions. And, uh, like we mentioned, they'll uh, provide a hotel within the footprint yeah. of your original trip. So if, if my trip gets canceled in the morning, do I need to be contactable from three to six that same day? Uh, yes. Okay. And so that will provide them an opportunity to give you uh, something the next day. And, and just like, you know, usual, they're not permitted to give you a trip that reports earlier than the originally uh, scheduled trip. I mean, mm-hmm. you can always optionally take that, but that's uh, your prerogative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, I want to point out just a couple things we were just, uh, that we added here to the high-risk individual leave. So one, uh, this leave has been expanded to include uh, individuals with uh, members of their household who are high-risk. So if you have a family member who's high-risk, you, you want to stay away from work, you can take advantage of this. Um, also clarified, this is always the case, but we clarified that uh, the pilots will also include uh, uh, the longevity piece includes credited service for participants in the fixed income plan. The pilots are eligible for a long-term disability and a short-term disability if they subsequently qualify. So that's still going to be a tool that's they can use if if they need it. And then uh, finally, uh, any accrued sick or vacation that the pilot has, he can use to uh, supplement his uh, lack of income in this case up to the monthly max each month while he's uh, on this leave. Good. Well, thank you, Chris, for explaining that. And thank you especially for all the work you put into to do this and all the other people you mentioned. I know it's, it's been a big heavy lift. Well, thanks for uh, having me on here, David. Yeah, you betcha. You're welcome, Chris. Will, I want to turn back to you and there's a couple of more issues that I'd like to discuss starting with the Hawaii quarantine. What can ALPA do about that? Well, unfortunately, David, you know, ALPA doesn't have a lot of direct control over what a state government does or you know the what the restrictions are that they issue in dealing with the the virus Um, but what we can do is communicate with you and make sure that crews are aware so that they can proactively make sure that they for instance don't have a temperature on their way over to the islands i think a leadership position on the company's part would have been uh, making for instance that very cleanly aware and allowing people to opt out of those trips if they didn't appreciate that exposure in this environment that we're in, which can be so stressful because things change every single day, you have to evaluate whether or not you really are fit for that trip for that day. And, you know, that goes beyond being sick. If if you are not fit, if you're not emotionally in the game, if you're not head isn't in the game, again, the, the number one thing we have to protect is safety. And pilots should not come to work if they can't guarantee that their head is in the game and, and that they're focused on safety. Will, finally, you had some concerns about what's been going on on some of the forums, online, some of these calls. Flesh that out a bit. 
a little bit, uh, and also just in comments that we received from uh, from the chief pilots or the base chief pilots, that in this world of uncertainty and uh, a lot of change, that there's certainly active discussions going on about what we should do about it. We as pilots, we as individuals, us as the union, and you know, those discussions are very, very healthy to have with your reps. That should be your, your focus is in talking to your reps in the decision-making body here, but uh, not necessarily in an environment where people are looking for any indication, that data mining of potentially where you'd be willing to go. Uh, there's discussion of you know, pe what people would do with scheduling line values. There's discussion about concessions. There's all kinds of things out there in a public forum that I just fear are gonna show up at some point in front of your negotiating committee at the table um, and be used against us. And, and really the proper place to have those debates or those discussions is with your elected reps so that they can bring them to us and we can have those same debates and those discussions. Because our focus right now is on defending and protecting your existing contract. Nothing in that has changed. Yeah, and there's, in most cases, the, these sorts of things that are being discussed aren't coming from management, right? There, it, it isn't concessions that management's looking for even. Correct, yes. It's just people doing their own problem solving um, and evaluation of the, the landscape that we're in and trying to decide what the best way is to navigate it. We're problem solvers. It's naturally what pilots do. Uh, my only point is, is that uh, you have to be careful in terms of those conversations either being had directly with people in management or certainly on public forums where we will end up with a photocopy of it presented to us at the table. Right. And, you know, it's clear that this is coming from a place of, of caring and empathy and wanting to be helpful. I mean, these are all great qualities and really admirable. And, and I would encourage people to continue with that um, heartfelt reaching out to the group. But when it comes to negotiating or, or doing things that will make it more difficult for our negotiators to, to make those goals, uh, it, it doesn't help. No, and that's one of the things I'm the most proud of for this pilot group is that everything has been done in the spirit of unity and uh, all of us taking care of one another. That The focus really does seem to be on helping, right. and it's just a matter of channeling that energy properly so that we can take care of you in this uncertain environment. Yeah, exactly. I think one thing to keep in mind um, is that this too shall pass and the COVID-19 will subside, the economy will improve and recover. And when it does, we wanna be an important part of that recovery. And so we need to be careful about how we approach these next few months so that we don't jeopardize are Co correct. Mm -hmm. the, the people cannot get overly focused in panic and what we don't know and focus more on long term and where we want to be and where we want to go. And uh, I think that fear is an unhealthy motivator when it comes to decision making. And it shouldn't, you know, underpin any of our discussions at this time. Okay, Will, I believe we've covered the majority of the, the big items that happened over this week. Before we close, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, thank you, David. Um, I think this week, like last week and like the one ahead, is going to be a lot more of what we don't know than what we do know. Things are so dynamic. Things change. And 
in that, uh, I keep on having to remind everybody, and I'd certainly remind the pilot group as well, to just take a moment and take that 30,000-foot view instead of that, uh, you know, 30-foot view and what's happening that one week and becoming too focused on it. As you said, the, the long-term vision of this is what happens when we do recover and what does that look like. And along the way, what's important is maintaining that perspective and not getting too caught up in the uh, immediate day and the bad news of the immediate day. And, and just keep that focus. Take very, very good care of each other and take care of yourselves. Um, there's, I know the stress that exists in my own life through this. I can see it in all the other volunteers and I see it in the pilot group. Um, and everybody needs to take care of themselves. And as we said earlier, above all, maintain a focus on safety. I thank you very much, Will. And Chris, thank you for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having us, David. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Good to talk to you guys. As always, we'll be back with another Alaska Pilots podcast in the near future, I'm sure. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell.